I don't know if the origin was back in the 70s or in the 80s, but the uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band had a song called Sharecropper's Dream. And in that song, it tells the story of a man who grew up in the rural south in a poor family, picking cotton, listening to the music that his parents would play in the house and singing along with his grandma's radio and had the aspiration of being a professional musician himself. And as he reflected on his childhood and compared it with his present life in chasing that dream, he says in the song, Now I know it's a long, hard road. And isn't that the way that it often is? Sometimes we look ahead to the future and we have great plans for what it could be, but the actual experience of either going there or getting there can make us say, now I know it's a long, hard road. And the Christian life can be the same, can't it? Certainly our Lord bids us to count the cost before we follow him, and we should. But then, sometimes when we get out there in the thick of things and experience opposition or indifference or persecution from the world, or when we feel the tug of sinful desires on our souls, the pleasures of the world, the love of money, and so forth, it can make us say, this Christian life is a long, hard road. Why else would there be exhortations like that of Galatians 6, 9, which tells us, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Why would anything of the sort need to be said if there were no danger of losing heart or growing weary along the way? Why would such a thing need to be said if we were never tempted to say, the Christian life is a long, hard road? And here in our text, as we continue in Colossians chapter 1, as we saw last Sunday evening, Paul reminded these Colossian Christians of who they were before Christ, who they are now in Christ, and then admonished them, exhorted them to persevere in the faith. Now as we look to verses 24 and 25 this evening, we see Paul addressing the subject of suffering. Suffering as a Christian, suffering for Christ's sake. And he speaks of his own suffering and even of his rejoicing in that suffering. And it may well be that given the context and given the exhortation that Paul had just given them in verse 23 to be firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, that he is perhaps anticipating some pushback or at least a mental objection raised on the part of his hearers, the part of his readers of this epistle. Continuing on in the faith, it can be hard. It can bring some consequences. It can bring suffering, ostracization, imprisonment, sometimes even death. And so Paul here, after exhorting them to continue on in the faith, talks a little bit about his own continuing on in the faith, namely the sufferings that he is enduring and his rejoicing in them. So let's look to what he says there, verses 24 and 25 of Colossians chapter 1. He speaks under the inspiration of the Spirit and says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And so, after just exhorting them to persevere in the faith, Paul now speaks of his own suffering. And 
not only of his suffering, but of his rejoicing in suffering. And he doesn't rejoice in suffering because he particularly likes it or because he views it as an end in itself. Rather, Paul rejoices in suffering because of who it's for and what it accomplishes. Paul rejoices in suffering, first of all, knowing that they are for the sake of the church. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He was suffering for the benefit of the church. How so? Well, Paul understands that in God's great plan, he sent his son into the world to redeem a people for himself by dying and rising again the third day. And then this salvation is applied to men and women as the gospel is proclaimed. And the gospel is not proclaimed in this world without a struggle. Satan and his demons are opposed to the truth, and those who are on his side are opposed to the truth of the gospel as well. And this means that the proclamation of the gospel will bring opposition. This happened uh, in the Old Testament times to the, the prophets who spoke the word of God. This happened to our Lord Jesus Christ himself, John the Baptist, the forerunner before him. This happened to the, the apostles and the preachers of the New Testament time. And so it goes. And those who are called and sent must be willing to proclaim the gospel despite the opposition, despite the persecution. And so Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the sake of of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. This is why Paul can say that he suffers for their sake. He says to these Colossians that he is suffering for their sake. It's because he suffers for the sake of the advance of the gospel. Similarly, he speaks to the Ephesians, Ephesians 3.13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. His imprisonment, his tribulation on their behalf. He's asked that they not lose heart, for they are your glory. And so Paul recognizes that his sufferings are on behalf of the church, on behalf of the elect broadly. And he also recognizes something else about his sufferings. He says, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He understands that his sufferings are part of the afflictions of Christ. A part of the afflictions of Christ, which he says, are yet, as of yet, lacking, which, as of yet, have not been fulfilled. Now, admittedly, this statement can be baffling, but it need not be so if we take into account the unity between Christ and his people, who are members of his body, and 1 Corinthians 12, 12 is helpful, I think, in helping us to, to grasp this idea of the unity between the head and the members of the body. And so Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. We have Christ and the body of Christ. Christ is the head. And we are the members of that body. I think John Davenant was helpful in, uh, in explaining the, the connection like this. He said, The term Christ denotes both the head itself and the church united to this head. Now, it is customary for everyone to attribute to himself those injuries which are inflicted upon any part of his body. Thus, the wounds of the head 
or foot are properly said to be the wounds of the man himself. And it is usual for him to exclaim that he is wounded in the hand or in the foot. So also in the same manner the apostle, because he is himself a member of the body of Christ, calls his affliction the afflictions of Christ. And and certainly we see this idea elsewhere in the New Testament, that the sufferings of Christ's people are reckoned and regarded as the sufferings of Christ himself. Probably the most famous incident would be Acts 9-4. Saul on the Damascus Road when Christ appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now obviously at that time, Saul was not doing anything to the resurrected physical flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, which were at the right hand of the Father in glory. But he was persecuting Christ because he was persecuting the members of Christ. He was, as Acts 8, 3 puts it, ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. He was, in the words of Acts 9, 1, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And therefore, doing those things to the members of Christ, he was persecuting Christ himself, who is the head of the body. And I think we see something similar in 1 Peter 4.13, where Peter says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultations. And you'll notice that in 1 Peter 4.13, Peter does not merely say that they were suffering for Christ's sake, but rather that they shared the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings they underwent, therefore, were a part of Christ's suffering. And Paul says here that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Again, this can be uh, baffling, but need not be so if we make the proper distinctions. And so in order to understand what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, we need to be very clear about what is not lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And what is not lacking is anything in regard to the suffering of Jesus Christ for our salvation. The suffering and death of Christ on the cross is abundantly sufficient for the sins of the whole world. The suffering and the death of Christ on the cross is abundantly efficacious for the salvation of the elect. Our Lord Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. We read in Hebrews 10:14 that by one offering, one offering, that on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And so there's, there's nothing lacking with regard to the redemptive sufferings of Christ for our salvation. But, on the other hand, inasmuch as the sufferings of the members of Christ's body are accounted the sufferings of Christ, and inasmuch as God has sovereignly ordained from the end to the beginning, that, uh, and, in that has so- and in that sovereignty has ordained all the sufferings of the body of Christ which are to come to pass from the foundation of the world until the return of Christ, there is, when viewed from that angle, then a preordained, set, quantitative number of sufferings, which are accounted as the sufferings of Christ, because they are the the sufferings of the body of Christ, the sufferings of those who are united to Christ. And those sufferings will not be finally fulfilled until Christ returns and the persecution of those who are his finally ceases. Until then, we can say that there is something lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Again, not that there's anything lacking in the price that was paid for our redemption, 
but there are sufferings that are coming to the body of Christ which have not yet come. There's, a, again, a preordained set quantitative number of persecutions that will come upon the people of God, and those are not yet fulfilled. And Paul sees his sufferings rightly as helping fill up that lack of sufferings in the body of Christ. And so Paul was in prison in Rome at the time that he was writing this, and in doing so, we could say that he was taking one for the team. He was uh, bearing sufferings for the body of Christ, doing his part to fill up those sufferings which were to come to Christ, which were to come to Christ the head through his body here on earth. And Paul says that he rejoices in this kind of suffering, which he was undergoing for the sake of the church. And then, in verse 25, he elaborates briefly on his position in the church, how he attained to that position and why. He says that his position in the church was that of a minister. Now, the word here is the same word that uh, we transliterate into English as, as deacon, and this word can be used in, in different ways depending on the context. Now, obviously, Paul is not a deacon in the sense of Philip, Stephen, and the rest of the seven who are there in Acts chapter 6. He's not a deacon in the First Timothy chapter 3 sense of things. But still, he is a minister. He is a servant. And though he is an apostle, he is not a master or lord or head of the church, but a servant of the church. He serves by proclaiming the gospel, taking the gospel to those who have not yet heard. And then he proceeds to speak of how he had attained to that position. He said he had received this ministry according to the stewardship from God. And the, uh, the word that's used there is sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes likened to, to household economics in terms of, of someone who is, is managing his household and setting things in order. And it is in that sense that Paul had received this, that God is, is in charge of his household, setting things in order, and he set Paul over here as a minister, as a servant, as an apostle to preach the gospel. And God had brought him into that position, as we know from the New Testament, in a remarkably special way, such that he could say in Galatians 1, 1, that he was an apostle not sent from man nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. We should note, however, that even though the calling and the appointment of Paul and the other apostles was unique, nevertheless, all true ministers of Christ's church are made such according to the stewardship of God. Though the church affirms and ordains qualified men to the ministry, ultimately it is Christ as we're told in Ephesians 4, who gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. This is God's arrangement in God's household to call and qualify men to minister in Christ's church. Such, one of such was Paul as a, as a minister to the church. He'd become such according to the stewardship of God. And he goes on and speaks of the purpose uh, of this ministry that he had received. He says it is for the, the benefit of believers. It's for their benefit, it's for ours too. And he goes on and he tells us the way in which it is for their benefit. He says, so that he might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And thus the apostle proclaimed the word of God with his mouth and with his pen in his day, he proclaimed it far and wide, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, eventually to Rome, and so forth. And now, through the written word, 
given by the inspiration of the Spirit, the gospel is made known through his writings throughout the entire world. And therefore he suffers. He serves in the household of God as a minister of Christ, giving the servants of Christ their food at the proper time. He serves as a herald, announcing the victory of the king and announcing the terms by which peace may be established with that king. But for this proclamation, he suffers, as he would say in 2 Timothy 2.9, hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But these sufferings do not cause him to lose heart. That's what he says there in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now how can Paul rejoice in his sufferings, right? We see, we see this again and again. He, he uh, you know, in the, the book of Philippians, one of, one of the other prison epistles, again and again, he, he calls them to rejoice. No doubt he himself is rejoicing. We see it here. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. We see it Acts 16 when he's imprisoned in Philippi. He and Barnabas there, or excuse me, he and Silas singing, singing hymns of praise to God in the middle of the night. How is it that he can say, I rejoice in my sufferings? Well, Paul sees how the Lord uses those sufferings for the advance of the gospel. And so one example, Philippians 1.14. He says that most of the brethren... Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so Paul sees how God is using his sufferings in the present, and he also knows rightly how to compare his present sufferings to what awaits him in the future. Romans 8:18, 8, as he says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. This is how Paul can rejoice. One, he sees, sees the, the earthly advantages as the gospel goes forward as a result of his sufferings. Two, he looks ahead to eternity and he says, there's no comparison between what I'm suffering here and what is going to happen to me in heaven when I am glorified with Christ. And you and I would do well to, to learn from his example and to learn to rejoice in whatever we should suffer for Christ's sake as well. And this is not merely to tolerate sufferings, but to rejoice in them. One man said that he is a poor soldier who follows his general sorrowing. We shouldn't sorrow as we follow our general, but we should rejoice. Now, this doesn't mean that we go out seeking punishment, seeking persecution as if we're gluttons for punishment or something of that, as if we rejoice in sufferings as an end in themselves. That's not what's going on here. But it does mean that when we're faithful to Christ and when we suffer on account of it, we should rejoice in it. Again, not merely tolerate it, but rejoice in it. Jesus himself said that we should. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad. That's what Paul's doing right here. Peter says the same. 1 Peter 4, 13 and following. To the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He's not to be ashamed, 
but is to glorify God in this name. And I would venture to say that if or when we suffer for the name of Christ, it will be helpful for us to join with Paul in remembering God's purposes for suffering. When we suffer for Christ's sake, as members of his body, we are doing the same thing that Paul was doing here, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. When we suffer for Christ's sake, we're testifying to the truth of the gospel, that we're willing to suffer pain, loss, or death because we believe that holding on to Jesus is better than the cessation of whatever pain or difficulty is coming our way because of Christ. We're saying that Christ is more important than my own security and comfort. Jesus is better. And this is for the good of the church. As others will be emboldened to stand firm for Christ and to speak up for him, as others are strengthened in their faith. And we need to remember that in the midst of this, we are blessed. Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. We need to remember that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed to us. Now, most of us here in this room have probably not had to suffer much, at least not yet, in terms of uh, suffering for Christ's sake, for our profession of faith. Who knows? That day may come when the temperature will ramp up and we will be called upon to suffer. And should God call us to that, let's say with Paul, I rejoice in my sufferings. May God strengthen us for that. Let's pray. Our Father, our lives are often so comfortable. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would strengthen us for whatever you may ordain in our lives. We pray that we would not shrink from suffering for the sake of Christ. We pray that we would do so with rejoicing, that should it come to us, we would glorify you, that we've been counted worthy of suffering for the sake of Christ. Lord, we, we ask that you would you would help us to rightly see the way that you use sufferings for the advance of the gospel here, for the salvation of your people as you, you purify us and conform us more to the image of Christ. And Lord, help us to have a right and true eternal perspective that we would see that the things we suffer here pale infinitely in comparison to what awaits us when we are with Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would establish us, that you would strengthen us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.